0: The following program is brought to you by We Are Many. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org. All right, thank you. Um, Can people hear me in the back? Yeah. I'm going to, I mean, if if anyone wants to move forward, I'll I'll take a moment so people can. Um, Josh is here trying to get the mic working, so hopefully that'll happen. for <laughs> that would go really slowly. Um Oh, it's working out. Hello. <laughs> Very good. Okay. Um, all right. The world is changing. Um, The surprise victory of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is a pretty amazing development. You have the victory of a young Latina socialist over Joe Crowley, known as the King of Queens, a Democratic Party power broker, and it was a shocker. Um, In fact, this guy was so arrogant that in the second debate with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, he sent a surrogate, a former Latino city councilwoman, to debate in his place, figuring that that might mollify people. Uh, the New York Times said, uh, well, that's not really a way to treat your voters. What, what, are, what are the voters? Chopped liver? Um, and, but you can totally understand uh, why, because in the first debate, in, the, in you know, he had an initial debate, and in that one, um, he kind of got... It kind of got kicked around a little bit. Uh, one of the things that was, I think, that the gem from that debate was that he was trying to tack left to steal Ocasio-Cortez's thunder. So he called ICE a fascist organization. Um, and her retort, which I just think, yeah, anyway, here, you, you can be the judge. If this organization is as fascist as you've called it, then why don't you adopt the stance to eliminate it? This is a moral problem, and your problem is to apply more paperwork to it." Um, So, you know, this election showed the appeal of socialist ideas to voters, and simultaneously it revealed the rot of the Democratic Party establishment. Some of the pundits in the immediate aftermath tried to say that the issue was that, you know, well, just there's changing demographics in the Bronx and Queens, as that these were, haven't like long been, you know, uh, to the two of the boroughs that are had the most people of color in New York City. Um, but the truth was that it really, wasn't uh, about changing democrat- demographics, it was about what Ocasio-Cortez put forward, it was about the program of Medicare for All, a federal job guarantee, free college tuition, and abolish ICE. And and in, a, in addition to that, I think quite admirably, she built on the Sanders phenomenon in important ways. You know, when Sanders would try to downplay, for example, the issues of, uh, of uh, I mean, he always argued against racism, of course, but his, his basic idea was that we should put forward class politics, these will address everyone's issues. And he kind of therefore sort of skated around that that question, whereas Ocasio-Cortez consistently said there is no issue that affects working class people that does not simultaneously and disproportionately affect black and brown people, and vice versa. The issues that affect black and brown people are working class issues. And I think that's a tremendous uh, service that, you know, that she uh, did in in kind of putting that forward. And so, down goes Joe Crowley. Um, And yeah. Now Sanders, of course, similarly shocked the establishment by nearly besting Hillary Clinton. And then Trump shocked everyone uh, by beating her, um, and I think, like Sand, well, I, and I think, I think, you know, unquestionably the Sanders phenomenon has also been a contradictory one because at the same time that it demonstrated in, uh, the, the relevance and the popularity of socialist ideas and turned out 13 million people to vote for him and so on, and helped to just revitalize this notion as a as a kind of part of mainstream American political life. Oh, where's my Okay, great. All right, I need to need to make sure that I stay on schedule. Um, so at the at the same time, uh, this sort of this breathes new life into the Democratic Party. It has raised the hopes that the left, generally and socialists in particular, can use the party as a vehicle for their program. And. Um, <clears throat> You know, I think as we've seen with the way that Bernie Sanders was treated, you see the response of the establishment being a kind of combination of carrots and sticks. So behind the scenes, they tried to crush Bernie Sanders' campaign in all sorts of dirty ways that later were revealed. Um, and at the same time, of course, there were people who were moving various, even establishment Democratic Party figures moving left again, trying to take that space to the left of the of the mainstream of the party, um, and and. As part of that process, of course, Sanders has become, in in the last two years, more committed, more fully committed to the Democratic Party than he ever has been in his career. Similarly, you see after Ocasio-Cortez's victory, Tom Perez, the chair of the Democratic National Committee, saying that candidates, socialist candidates like Ocasio-Cortez, are the future of the Democratic Party. Now... Um, actually not even all that surprising actually when you think about it. It's been the whole history of how the Democratic Party has attempted to co-opt the left and social movements for a century. A combination of absorption and co-optation on the one hand and marginalization and disciplinary sorts of measures on the other. And I think it is really worth stepping back to ask the question, how did we actually get here in the first place? Because the interest in socialism didn't just burst onto the scene with Bernie Sanders. Uh, Over the course of some years now, the, the popularity of socialism has been growing, um, showing that, for example, young people in more or less equal numbers think they like socialism and they like capitalism. Um, and in fact, I think there was even another poll that I read. There was a Gallup poll that was, I think, it was a Gallup poll that was like, "Would you like to live in a socialist country?" And I, that was a clear majority of young people were saying that they wanted they prefer to live in a socialist country. Um, Now, um, but I think that a lot of this goes all the way back to the Great Recession of 2008 that not only demonstrated just the the sort of, and further exacerbated the economic inequalities of our system, but if if people think back then, um, Obama pushed through this federal bailout, 700 billion dollars I believe was the figure, um, and because of that, he got attacked for being a socialist. You know, your, your your state intervention in the economy and so on. And this was shortly, of course, after Obama's You know, historic election. And rather than that making, attacking Obama as socialist, making Obama somehow less popular, what it did was it made socialism more popular. Oh, if Obama's a socialist, maybe I should be a socialist too. Um, And you had the cover of Newsweek, you know, We're All Socialists Now. I don't know if people remember that kind of iconic cover. The red hand of the Republican Party, the blue hand of the Democratic Party, we're all socialists now. Um, And then quickly on the heels of that followed. Occupy Wall Street, the Arab Spring, the Black Lives Matter movement, Standing Rock, um, a, a resurgence of imi- immigrant rights struggles, and then and then Sanders enters the scene and, you know, in his quite capable ways was able to articulate um, a certain vision of socialism for a broad audience. Because he, he talked about a lot of the same things that Ocasio-Cortez did, I mean, there were also—I remember—very clear uh, moments where he would say things that I thought I was just like, "Oh my gosh!" You know, socialism. What are examples of socialism? You know, public libraries, the police. Um, you know, these are these are government institutions. You know, so they're examples of socialism. Um, but you know, the, this this basic dynamic has. Now, continued, we had the ongoing explosion of growth in DSA, which is a fantastic development. We've had the explosion of a strike wave of teachers all across the country. We've had um, uh, uh, the the, the sort of outpouring of resistance around the question of family separations and immigrant rights, um, and a small but significant crop of DSA-backed candidates who have won in. Uh, running in in Democratic Party uh, primaries and so on, the most high profile of which is, so far, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Now, this has re-raised, it's reinvigorated a question about um, running socialist candidates within the Democratic Party, But I I first want to say a couple things before getting into some of those debates. Because first of all, I I just think it needs to be said that the the whole question of is the Democratic Party a lesser evil and lesser evil voting will really define still, I think, this midterm election. Because for most voters in most places, really there are choices between a Republican and a kind of garden variety uh, uh, Democratic Party candidate. Um, And (coughs) I think that... um, Yeah, so that's going to be... uh, the feature, uh, you know, a, a predominant feature of this election. Now, there will be around these other campaigns that will be, um, uh, you know, kind of taking place over the coming months and years, I think, uh, a number of debates about the Democratic Party. And I'm going to lay out kind of in just sort of broad terms three of the, the the main ways, I think, that people on the left think about this. Why would you want to run a socialist candidate in the Democratic Party? Um, and, and, and how do we think about that? Well, one idea would be that that's, um, a way to take over the Democratic Party, um, to take it back for our side, to make the Democratic Party return to its roots as uh, as a party of the people and so on. There's the view that you run within the party to build up your forces in order to sort of break out, um, which I'll be taking up. And then a third view would be that well, we, we should stay outside the Democratic Party. We can build independently of that. The, our aim is to build an independent party of the working class, but that doesn't make us irrelevant or what have you to these big developments, and I'm going to go through what I see as some of the ways that we um, can engage in that, because I share that view, and that's been historically the position of the ISO and the, our approach to, to this question. Now. In order to kind of get into those debates, I just want to start, I think, from some points that I think more or less people at this conference anyway, whether they're from DSA or in the ISO, tend to actually agree on whatever some of our other differences are. The first is to is to get at where does change come from in the first place. And that is to say that it comes through struggles from below. That that it comes through, that ultimately our goal is the self-emancipation of the working class um, through revolutionary transformation of society, but that in the here and now even basic reforms are won through struggle, that have the power to compel in the here and now regardless of who's in office, significant reforms, um, and you know there's kind of just the, the best possible living examples of that for us right around us today, I mean the teachers who went on strike. They were mostly going on strike, not even against Democrats, but against Republicans. And in the course of a few weeks, Republicans went from saying, no, there's nothing we could possibly do to address your salary demands or the funding for education, and then, what do you know, hundreds of millions of dollars appear, and people are getting 10%, 15% raise, unheard of raises, substantial <laughs> changes, substantial changes. <laughs> Substantial changes in their quality of life, living standards, and so on. One in the you know we didn't have to wait or remember in November or anything like that. It was one on the you know in the process of people co- organizing and carrying out collective action. And similarly, you see the way that abolish ICE as a demand has suddenly moved from what was considered a marginal, like extreme sort of like oh only people in the ISO would say something like that, to something that mainstream Democrats are now embracing. And I think that that would have been impossible with out the outrage, the outpouring of protest and resistance around this question that took the form of grassroots popular struggle all across the country. Um, and I think throughout history we see the 1930s, the 1960s, the periods in which the most substantial reforms have been won have been the periods of highest levels of class struggle, of social movements, and that the politicians like FDR or the Kennedy and Johnson administrations that are given the credit for carrying out these reforms really were compelled and that, that, was, that was the product of those struggles that then found an expression in the political system. And in those cases, it was Democrats who were in office, but like I just explained, you know, it could be other parties as well. Um, and I think that this is critical because you know the Democratic Party, like the Republican Party, is a capitalist party. Um, and I think there's, again, something that I think people here at this conference generally agree on, that, that whatever ways in which the Democratic Party differs from the Republican Party, these are differences of degree um, and differences about strategy for the global domination of American capitalism, which in the end depends upon low wages for the working class, high military spending, you know, the, essentially a low wage workforce that generates huge profits out of which can be built the most powerful military in the history of the world. And it's a Democratic party that's a capitalist party because of who staffs its upper echelons, where the majority of its funding comes from, its integration into the state structures that defend and uphold the capitalist system generally. And then of course, you know, if you look back, uh, that doesn't mean that the Democratic party hasn't always spoken as if it's the party of the people, that it's been happy to take millions of dollars from labor unions and so on, but you know, essentially it gives lip service there and then on all the key questions of uh, you know, the, the the sorts of demands that are relevant to working class people. I mean, remember Barack Obama, we thought when he got elected, you know, he had the perfect situation in which he could carry out things like, well, I'm going I'm to skip that. I, I, I'm running out of a little bit of time. But in any sense, in any case, that uh, I think those are things that, that we agree on that essentially struggle from below um, is is critical. I'll say one last thing about the Democrats, which is that the other thing about the Democrats and and the way that our rotten electoral system works is just like the Republicans, the Democrats rely on trying to choose their voters instead of the idea that the voters should be the people who choose the candidates. And this is really, I think, critical to what Unseated Joe Crowley, because one of the things that they've done in New York State, the Democratic Party, is to split off the primaries at the state level from the federal level in order to de- like depress turnout and to be able to manage who turns out, who wins in those, in those um, midterms, uh, in, those, in those primaries. And one of the things that then happened was that that made the turnout, s- historically speaking, so low that Ocasio Cortez was able to basically transform the turnout. In order to boot out Crowley, and now that's going to feed into a much greater sense that insurgent candidates can win and will ch- be challenging the establishment in the state-level primaries that happen, you know, a, a couple months from now. Um, so, you know, these things can also backfire. They, they you know, there's a there's a certain um, it's the arrogance of power often <laughs> becomes the you know the the, the precondition for demise. Um, so. Where do elections, therefore, fit into this picture, though? And I think that, um, you know, it's important just to say that our political system, of course, celebrates elections as, like, the highest form of politics. This is your civic duty. You're supposed to vote, and so on. And not surprisingly, struggle doesn't fit very neatly within these bourgeois notions of democratic pluralism, you know, the interest group theory of political power and democracy. So, So a struggle from below is not exactly a big part of that theory or celebrated in that way, because in the end, collective Action wins through the disruption of business as usual by posing a threat to the power of capital over, over the workers who produce the wealth and by mobilizing social power outside the esteemed institutions of our democratic pluralist system that has truthfully always sought to limit democracy, not to maximize it. That leaves economic power fully in the control of the capitalist class, we don't get a chance to vote over our conditions of work, for example, um, but then pretends that the principle of one person, one vote makes us all equal magically when it comes to politics, even though they have the massive arsenal of wealth and power that it takes to uh, ensure their political domination. Um, so, elections are not collective action, but a choice made by an individual voter, voter in a booth. And of course, the best campaigns can have the feeling of an activist sort of thing like like the Nader campaign did in 2000, which we were a part of, or the Ocasio-Cortez campaign for that matter. But again, we do know that change ultimately comes through struggle from below and that even left-wing candidates once in office have, you know, tend to carry out austerity and other anti-worker and pro-war policies and so on unless there's a counterforce in the form of a movement or a strike or a struggle or an outcry from below that holds them accountable and so on. And This is true not just of even the democratic party but even social democratic parties and reformist parties you know, around the world. That's been the, the history of the last century's worth of experience. So, Elections are nevertheless not irrelevant. They are useful means to promote, defend, and argue for socialist ideas. They can be used as a bully pulpit to gain a much larger hearing. And once in office, socialists can hold big hearings, they can push for legislation and even if it loses, they can be putting that forward, as, a, as, a, as a, getting that into the debate. They can use their office as a megaphone to, uh, you know, the press conferences and legislative debates and so on, to expose the various dirty deals and to amplify calls for social struggle. And that's the best case scenario. At the same time, and it just this is just true again, kind of in all circumstances, it's also an entanglement. Um, it's an entanglement in just the bureaucracy of running day to day, as you know, being of the life of a, of a legislator. Um, and even in a labor party or a social democratic party, there's a lot of bureaucracy that comes with elected office. But in the democratic party, where we're talking about one of the two parties of the world's most powerful capitalist state that is thoroughly integrated in the various institutions and so on, that's addicted the corporate money, where elections themselves are big business, this this is like this is not the, the, the most favorable terrain for our side. I think it goes without saying, um, and you know there's that there's the whole carrots and sticks dynamic that follows. Um, so. We're looking at a situation where there's rising levels of of struggle and activism and a strike wave, where the DSA and other socialist organizations like ours are growing, um, where there's huge potential, major risks, and where, you know... So anyway, that's where... I hope that that's kind of just sets up where the the, the terms of where the debate begins. So I want to try to deal with a few of the questions now. Uh, one by one uh, on how, regarding how should the left relate to the Democratic Party. So first uh, is this idea that we can take back the party. The left should have more influence, um, there's, uh, you know, and that the party should return to its roots as a party of the people, which weren't its roots, but okay. Um, and um, but. But I think that, um, and I think that it's, it's, it's worth saying that this is actually the view of even ocasio Cortez herself. I mean, if you go through her website and the Justice Democrats, which she's a part of and that endorsed her, but she's also on the board of, I mean, they're very clear. We want to put working people in Congress, and we want to take uh, back the uh, the party. Um, now. Uh, I, I, and, I, and I think that, again, it's, it's actually a position that makes, that connects extremely well with what is the common sense out there. I mean, we've been saying for years that there's a huge sentiment to the left of the Democratic Party, of course the Democratic, <clears throat> I mean, a lot of people conclude, of course the Democratic Party could be more successful by moving to the left, and, and that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I think that that's where this the whole history of what the Democratic Party is and does is so important, <clears throat> because... It shows how American capitalism has really relied on the Democratic Party as the boss's B team, or perhaps now, with Trump taking over the Republican Party, it's the boss's A team um, as far as the ruling class is concerned, and that history shows that you know, over successive waves of struggle, that the Democratic Party has become a graveyard of social movements um, that has basically trapped the left inside it. And that makes sense again. People aren't born revolutionaries. Um, They don't automatically draw revolutionary conclusions. Society gives every reason, gives people every reason not to draw such conclusions. People have to be recruited to them. And I think that that basic idea is kind of out there um, and quite widespread. So, and I actually don't think that that's the view though, of, of almost anyone at the, at the conference. Who, but if, if people agree with that, feel free to argue it, um, uh, argue for it. I think the second approach that that people have been talking about, that I think, or kind of is uh, articulated by Eric Blanc's article. He's in the audience here about the the case for the dirty break, um, is that people that that we should use the the, the ballot line that we could build within the Democratic Party in order to break out of it. Um, and I, I have to admit that in this debate, I think people should really, I hope I don't know if enough people have read Paul DeMotto's response to Eric that was in Socialist Worker called What Lessons to Take from the Farmer Labor, Labor, Farmer Labor Parties. But I, I agree with the, the, the points laid out there. And basically what Paul argues is that if you run the film a little longer, the various successful examples that Eric points to in his article um, essentially come in the, in the course in some years to end in grief and that's despite far more favorable circumstances of that period of the 1930s where there was a higher level of working-class organization large numbers of socialists committed to the principle of class independence of the working class and I think The the, the problem, when you start to get into the concreteness of it, is that the issue is that as you succeed, it actually tends to make the break harder to carry out, because it ends up breathing new life into the party, into the idea that it can be taken over, and I think that one of the the, the toughest things is that in order, I think, for there to be such a break, the precondition would be... um, candidates, or really many candidates, who are sharp as nails about the need for this break. Because when you win, the, it's the candidate that has the, the megaphone, and if they're not committed and committed to carrying that through, then it, then it won't come through. And then, you're, and then in any case, even if you do have some candidates, there's still always the debate about, do we break now? Do we break later? And there's always a huge temptation to think that if we just stay a little longer, we'll build up our forces, we'll be in a better situation to break out later, but at the same time, what's going on all along that is that process of co-optation and absorption that the Democratic Party establishment is no doubt going to be trying to carry out. And we've only just seen the first glimpses of what they're going to do in response to this this kind of one signature victory and and a bunch of the smaller ones. So, Um, approach uh, is the pr- approach of, of um, working outside the Democratic Party um, in order to um, forge a uh, with, the, with the goal of trying to build an independent working class uh, political party to the left of the Democrats um, <coughs> that uh, That I think um, you know, we've seen various efforts again, historically in the United States, at at the high points of struggle, where those have started to uh, begin to crystallize, coalesce, and then get drawn back into the Democratic Party again and again, much to the detriment of the left, and it's why we're basically still debating this question, you know, all these years later. But I just think that I want to say a couple things about it, because I think that some people have said, well, that, if you take such a position and such approach, that essentially consigns you either to irrelevance or abstention. And I just think that that's, I I, I, I think that's not true. I think there's all kinds of ways that you can think of how we can collaborate and work with Democratic Party people in office and so forth, and even people organizing campaigns. If you think back, I'm going to use a term that people may or may not be familiar with, but the United Front method, as a method, is what we've long used to figure out how we work with other forces that are to our right, that are more moderate in various ways. And the idea is that we can collaborate around particular demands. We can, we can, and I think the, the case of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is like the most perfect example of how that could look. She's almost, she's basically guaranteed to win in November. So her, her district is a, is a, is a Democratic Party uh, district. It's totally safe. Um, and when she wins, there's going to be the question of, you know, if she's going to put through her legislative demands, it's like, well we can be part, we can be fit soldiers of creating a movement to stand up for those demands. And as we, like the, the prior history I went through, that's going to be actually critical to winning almost anything in her agenda. Um, we, along with DSA, along with other immigrant rights forces, for example, in Queens and, uh, and throughout New York, could basically build a movement around abolish ICE. She could take office. <laughs> she, she could take office and say... I'm calling on my constituents and actually people all across this country to join me in forging a grassroots campaign of this sort. I want everyone to come down to my offices, we'll meet, we'll start to lay out how that's going to look. And you can imagine repeating this around different sorts of issues and demands. And it's obviously we'd have to have discussions and debates about what were the be the priorities and so on, but I think that you know that. is the the sort of thing that we could do, and truthfully, it's the sort of thing that we have done. I mean, for people who aren't as familiar with the history of the ISO, there was an effort that we undertook for a long time called the Campaign to End the Death Penalty, which in this city meant working a lot of times with Jesse Jackson Sr. and Jesse Jackson Jr., who were obviously very much inside the Democratic Party, but who had an audience that we could work with. We would go to their their, their headquarters. They had these Sunday morning kind of rallies that were kind of combined with church service or was it Sunday or Saturday? Yeah, Saturday. Saturday, and because uh, church is on Sunday, um, and and those were the kinds of efforts that we did. We never stopped being critical of the Democratic Party, but we actually were able to work, you know, side by side around. Uh, actually, one of the people that was in that uh, that effort is now a city councilman here, um, Joe. What's his last name? Joe Moreno. Um, so, and people can actually speak speak about those sorts. of... Well, right. That, I, I think that's worth it's worth talking about the way in which people. That that's one of the trajectories that I think is quite common uh, in the absence of a party of our own. All right. So I want to make how much time do I have? Ten minutes. Okay. Okay. So I want to just kind of uh, have a make a few final thoughts before concluding one is about the question you know what what guides us as marxists in thinking about elections and and one of the things that's a principle of the marxist movement back to the time of marx and engels is the principle of working class political independence now some people have, i think <clears throat> there's been various debates about this question of, of, of principle versus strategy and so on and Why do we, you know, our principles really, what distinguishes a principle from a strategy and so on. I would say this about that. If it's a good principle, it should generate good strategies. And I think that history has shown that entanglement with capitalist parties leads away from the task of independent working class action. And, (laughs) And that whole history we then generalize. this whole experience into principles precisely to keep us oriented when the world inevitably confronts us with new circumstances that may look really different but that are essentially still where we think that principles are a guide, a way to summarize the accumulated experiences and lessons of the socialist movement. Now, I just want to say, though, that I don't think it's necessary to invoke principle in this debate. I think we should have the debate level strategy, but I think we will reach, at least I, I think that, that it's, you reach the same conclusion. But I think that's part of the debate and that, I, that I hope we'll, um, people, people will pursue here today. Um, let's see, I'm going to I'm gonna need to speed up a little bit. Um, Okay, another argument that I think is out there is that, well, isn't it a contradiction that because Sanders and now Ocasio-Cortez have done so much to draw socialists into uh, the DSA and have kind of um, helped to cohere and, and give a voice to that, isn't it a contradiction that we wouldn't therefore be in favor of voting for them of endorsing them and so on and working on their behalf and I, I think that that's I, I, I don't agree that, that that that's a contradiction I don't I think that we've our position has never been that not that everything that the Democratic Party does is pure garbage that every single thing that comes out of a Democrat's mouth is like something that we just can't possibly abide in fact that's the secret to their success their the, the struggle helps popularize demands like abolish ICE, and then when Democrats embrace it, it helps advance that demand further. But they're trying to basically make sure to keep their uh, to, to, to reach out to the left to make sure that all these struggles get channeled through the party. Um, and even at the same even if at the same time, that's going to help develop an audience for socialism. And I think that 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 doesn't mean that we have to campaign in order to be able to benefit from that or what have you. Um, so. There's that. Um, I also don't think that we're irrelevant um, in in the sense that here we've got we've got really well. First of all, just it bears stating that this was just one primary campaign. Uh, that that uh, in the case of Ocasio Cortez, we will see all kinds of counter uh, uh, strikes by the Democratic Party establishment. Um, and I think that um, but I think that it's quite natural for us to 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 think to to uh, conclude or understand that DSA is growing and that's a good thing. But it also makes perfect sense. It's the natural place for people to turn who are radicalized by Sanders and Ocasio Cortez and other candidates, at the same time that it represents all the contradictions of that. Um, I mean, I, I was going to quote Kim Moody, who wrote a piece in New Politics a few months ago called The Two Souls of Democratic Socialism, which I think gets at this sort of dynamic that's going on. He says, he talks, He was talking about their uh, convention last summer, he says, motions that were critical of corporate Democrats and progressives, and looking to a more limited engagement with the Democratic Party, were defeated. So, um, but then he goes on to say that that these motions got an encouraging 40% of the delegate vote. And the other side of the coin, of course, is that a considerable majority voted against these and by implication to continue to see the Democratic Party as the main vehicle for socialist electoral politics in opposition to Trump. He continues, That doesn't mean that a majority of newer DSA members want to proceed in the old ways. Many reject the corporate money, the expense of air wars, and presumably the more recent forms of top-down digital voter targeting, as well as the neoliberals, corporate democrats, Democrats, and weak-kneed practice of much of the party's progressive wing. Nevertheless, some still say, supporting progressive Democrats is okay. The quote, pick and mix position that says support some progressive Dems, socialists running as Dems, and maybe even agree now and then, however, (laughs) does not provide an alternative. The fact is that DSA, as the largest socialist organization in the United States, has not embraced an alternative to the old practice of relying on the Democratic Party for electoral action. The thousands of new activist members represent one soul of this organization, its presence in many movements, its energy, its growth and aggressiveness, yet clinging to the age-old orientation to the Democratic Party, even the new ways represents another older contradictory soul and i think that that basic characterization still describes what's going on and i think that we can and do remain relevant in the debates and in the discussions um, with our comrades in dsa around all these dynamics and i think that this conference is proof of that it's helped to cement growing relationships among local branches of our organizations which are already collaborating in various struggles and that um i think that sessions like this one and ones throughout the weekend um show that you know we can engage in comradely debate about these strategic <coughs> questions um So I'm going to, how much time do I have now? So um, I think that, um, you know, as far as our own electoral work, which we've engaged in some fair amount over the years, for back in California in the mid 2000s, we uh, ran for a number of offices. In fact, I think our member Sarah knope uh, or our former member Sarah Knope won uh, still to this day the most votes of any Green Party candidate in a statewide election. She won like 17% of the vote, 560,000 votes, um, which was a bit of a I mean that was a bit of a shocker for us at the time. Um, uh, we engaged in Chicago in a number of campaigns after the teacher strike in in 2013. Um, and in new york state we ran uh, our member brian jones for uh, as lieutenant governor on a green party ticket with howie hawkins um, and generally just just so people know to lay out like what our kind of electoral outlook is, is that we should we always want to be looking for opportunities to run our own candidates or other candidates willing to work outside the democratic party in order to gain experiences in order to test the waters um, we try to work with unions, social movement forces, anyone interested in building this kind of more left labor party. I remember being involved in an earlier stillborn effort around the Labor Party in the 1990s. Um, but I think actually the success today is way higher. But I think the, the clarity required is also very high because of, um, of, the, of the entanglement issue. And I think the, the, the last thing to say is that, of course, elections require a great deal of resources, um, money, time, and energy, and that has to come from somewhere. It means that you can't do other things that you might want to do. But in general, we're guided by the approach that Marx laid out in his March 1850 address to the Communist League, where he said, that the Workers' Party should march with the petty bourgeois democrats against the faction which it aims at overthrowing, and then oppose them in everything whereby they seek to consolidate their position in their own interests. He continues, even when there is no prospect whatsoever of their being elected, the workers must put up their own candidates in order to preserve their independence, to count their forces, and to bring before the public their revolutionary attitude and party standpoint. In this connection they must not allow themselves to be seduced by such arguments of the Democrats as, for example, that by so doing they are splitting the Democratic Party and making it possible for the reactionaries to win. The ultimate intention of all such phrases is to dupe the proletariat. The advance which the proletarian party is bound to make by such independent action is infinitely more important than the disadvantage that might be incurred by the presence of a few reactionaries in the representative body. Uh, or as Eugene Debs put it, maybe a lot more succinctly and kind of, uh, and maybe a more classically American way, uh, I'd rather vote for something I want and not get it, than vote for something I don't want and get it. Um, and I want to basically just end by saying a couple words about what I think kind of stands behind all of these debates and that what we have to keep our eyes on as revolutionary socialists, which is <clears throat> the much longer standing debate about reform and revolution. Um, the revolutionary socialist movement in the early part of the 20th century um, carried out a split with the reformist forces, uh, reformist socialists, on the basis of the painful experience of watching all of these social democratic parties uh, capitulate to supporting, you know, their own governments in the First World War. Uh, the the Second International uh, Reformist Social Democrats had stood for electing Socialists to Parliament in order to carry out the reforms um, that would undercut capitalism by taking control of the commanding heights of the economy. Socialism from above, essentially. And during the last century, we've seen Social Democratic parties carry out a long rightward march that dropped even the pretense of standing for the transformation of capitalism, Instead, pledging to implement reforms, and then once in office, not even implementing reforms, but actually, and and then, you know, towards the end of the 20th century, embracing neoliberalism and so on. And that's where we are today. Today, we have a tiny left, after 40 years of a very low level of struggle, a horrible employer's offensive, and the sense that existed for so many for a long time that there really is no alternative. Today, the situation is changing rapidly. Thankfully, people have rising expectations in no small part because of um, the struggles of the teachers, in no small part because of the idea that Sanders could get 13 million votes, but at the same time, we have a Democratic Party that systematically tries to lower those expectations, that, sim- that tries to act as an optical in that, because that's their worst nightmare. That, that lots of people would have much higher demands that they would place on the Democrats, who always are trying to figure out how to how to act as the executors of what the ruling class wants, while maintaining their uh, image as the party of the people. Um, and I think that over the last year and a half, more people have t- taken part in a protest than at any time in American history. We see struggles all around. I think that That means that it's possible to persuade people that the Democratic Party is part of the problem, and you'd think it should be easy, but we know how hard that actually is. And that's what we will, as I said earlier, be largely faced with in this midterm. And that means that it sometimes will be swimming against the stream with most people in most places, and that's actually okay. Like, we can go through that experience with people and, and, and argue about what's wrong with lesser evilism, and then we can actually continue those debates afterwards. That's the, that's the approach that we took uh, again and again, with the Obama campaign being maybe the most recent one that kind of was, was a real challenging uh, a, a part of our, of our or, or, or um, real challenging moment in a sense, but one in which I think we also gained lots of experience, in which ultimately we were able to grow through as well. So, I think that our common tasks. Um, well, two, two points So, the radical, I'm, I'm wrapping up now so the radicalization today is having an electoral expression for sure but that's not the only place that it's being expressed and it's also not the only source of the radicalization if it was only that then we really wouldn't be talking about a, a period in which there are strikingly new features in this way And I think that we can say that our common tasks, as the ISO and the DSA and and the rest of the left, should be to give that radicalization the highest possible expression in the labor movement, in strike activity, in the streets, and in the electoral arena when opportunities arise to run candidates outside the Democratic Party. Or when socialists like Ocasio-Cortez win, and then we can, like I laid out earlier, help to build struggles around her activist struggles in the streets to build um, support and uh, and and put you know force behind her legislative initiatives and and the so and so forth. In the medium to longer term, I hope we will all be working together to forge an independent party of the working class—a task that the left has put off for far too long. Um, and that is going to require a lot of work to knit together the forces to make such an effort possible. I think it will also require, in general, a much higher level of working class struggles and strikes that will actually begin to create the sense in labor unions that, yes, we can take our money and our and our members and our time and our, and our energies and put them into something to the left of the Democratic Party, because that historic marriage, as Mike Davis calls it, the barren marriage between the Democratic Party and the labor movement, continues. Um, And I think, lastly, that at every step along the way, we need to be winning people to the politics of socialism from below. We need to do so by combining struggle in the streets and in workplaces with every other further effort that we can to forge that working class political independence. And I look forward to the debate and discussion uh, here.